welcome back to Art History Happy Hour. My name is Sarah Schaefer. And I'm Tina Rivers-Ryan. And this is our first full content, real content episode. We're very excited about it. We're going to be talking about something that Tina has been thinking about, tweeting about, writing about a lot lately, and that is all this hype around NFTs and crypto art. So this is an incredibly... uh topical episode and I know that when we relaunched we said we wouldn't always necessarily be quite so topical but since it is something that has been in the news and since um, I know uh, some of you have been really interested in and and asked us about I figured now is as good a time as any Um, while it's still relevant I'm like still sort of um, thinking that this is a huge hype cycle and that it will burst and that we will not be talking about NFTs in six months but I don't know I could be wrong I honestly did not expect them to still be relevant in May when this first really blew up in February. So, uh, but here we are. There's already a lot of information that's circulating out there about what an NFT is and uh, why crypto art emerged at this moment in time. So I will provide a sort of brief overview of some of that information, including also the major um, touted advantages and also criticisms of NFTs and crypto art. Um, But really what Sarah and I thought we could do today to contribute to the discourse that would be really helpful is to speak from our position as art historians and provide some comparisons, bring in some art historical references that would help maybe um, tease out some of the more philosophical or conceptual questions that are raised by NFTs um, and also talk a little bit about the aesthetics of NFTs, which is something that most people aren't really talking about because frankly, the, the artwork itself is not particularly innovative. It's, it's really the NFT itself that is the major innovation and that's why everyone's really talking about that right now. To get started, for those of you who um, are still looking for a quick primer on what exactly an NFT is, you have to understand that an NFT is um, something that exists uh, thanks to uh, a digital record keeping system called the blockchain. And the blockchain first emerged over a decade ago, and basically it is um, often referred to as a distributed ledger because it is a way of storing blocks of records across a chain of computers that are linked through the internet. Anyway, I won't get more into it, but just to say that basically the blockchain is associated with a kind of um, techno-libertarian politics, um, thinking that technology will be a solution to create um, new ways of interacting with each other that are not mediated by governments. Um, And uh, it's also been very popular with anarcho-capitalists or people who think that, you know, we should have um, a capitalist economy that is completely free from any kind of regulation. And in fact, the first... um, you know, a real use of the blockchain was, in fact, to um, uh, conduct transactions on um, the so-called dark web. Um, So a lot of um, illegal drug trafficking, for example. (laughs) Um, So, uh, so yeah, so it's got a bit of a shady history. And um, one could argue that NFTs are um, a kind of extension of that very same ideology. And we'll come back to that in a minute. Because I will not have very much to contribute in this initial part of the episode, I feel like I'm just going to be interjecting anecdotes and uh, thinking about the history of of, um, cryptocurrency in the blockchain. I was thinking back to when I first became aware of it, which was through listening to an episode of a podcast. And it was when I was living in New York. And I have this weird thing where I associate certain episodes of a podcast 
with the place I was in where I listened to them. Like, and it's really specific and I don't have a very strong memory in other cases. So this is one of those weird things. I specifically remember waiting on the platform at the West 4th Street ABCD uh, uh, subway station. And that was where I learned about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. No idea why that is stuck in my brain, but it has. And that was, you know, so that was in New York. So that was... Maybe, you know, not immediately when cryptocurrency was becoming a thing, but, you know, I've known about it for more than a year, I will say that. <laughs> I just love how incredibly apt it is that you were underground when you learned about mm. cryptocurrency because it is very much like, a you know, or at least it was originally meant to be a kind of subterranean network. Right. Um, now it's gone quite mainstream, of course, with like major banks and even the, the city of Miami, which is where I'm from, has now said, you know, the mayor of Miami-Dade County wants to or the head of Miami-Dade County wants, you know, the city government to be accepting cryptocurrency. But anyway, so so cryptocurrency, what that refers to are um, airsats currencies. So they're not actually currencies by the uh, sort of classic um, uh, definition offered by economics, um, but they are um, assets that um, are created on the blockchain that store value and that are traded as if they are a kind of currency. Um, and so these assets are, are, are fungible records on the blockchain. So um, fungible um, simply means sort of exchangeable. And if you think about traditional currencies, like forms of fiat, like a single dollar is as good as any other dollar, right? So it's fungible. Like I can trade my dollar for your dollar. And at the end of the transaction, we both still have the same amount of money. So those are fungible currencies. And so cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin are, are based on fungible records on the blockchain. Now, a non-fungible record is a unique digital record on the blockchain. And this is where the blockchain gets really interesting, I think. Um, because normally we think of digital records as being sort of inherently reproducible and... Um, and that each of these is identical, unless there's like, you know, bit rot or um, other kinds of degradation. But um, the, the fact is when you're using the blockchain, you can sort of stamp pieces of information. Um, and I'm, I'm sorry, I apologize now to anybody who's like actually really deeply in the blockchain space who has wound up listening to this podcast because I know that I am sort of moving very quickly and glossing over a lot of things and probably being reductive if not out and out inaccurate at some points, but I'm we're going to be glossing this. Yeah, yeah, I'm we're glossing over like trying to translate this into layman's terms, um, you know, from the perspective of an art historian. So I want to get to the things that are actually really relevant to those of us who are interested in art. But I do feel like it's important to understand the technology a little bit. You can you can sort of enter inter information into the blockchain in a way that creates a, a unique record that actually is non fungible and people realized, and I'm not going to go over the history of this, but people basically realized that you could use these non-fungible records um, to create tokens um, that basically digital pieces of information that could act as surrogates of assets that they would point to um, and that you could you know, attach a kind of smart contract onto, you should bundle a smart contract together with a pointer to this asset, and that would create a non-fungible token that would represent that asset. And so um, these non-fungible tokens or NFTs are basically just digital records that act as surrogates or tokens of something else that exists, right? And it could be anything. It could be a meme. It could be a website. It could be my office chair. It could be literally anything. Now, since around 2018, people have been using these NFTs to buy and sell what are called digital collectibles. Um, and so these are um, digital assets, digital files that are inherently reproducible and that 
often circulate totally freely on the internet, but that people might want to collect, that people you know, uh, would perceive some value in being able to say, well, I am the titular owner of this asset, even though you know, everybody has it uh, you know, on their computers or everybody can see it online. Um, and so this is an interesting development because these kinds of inherently reproducible assets don't naturally fit in with traditional markets because normally traditional markets, do, uh, they associate value with scarcity. So what the NFT does is it creates artificial scarcity for the collectible so that even if the collectible itself is not scarce, the NFT is scarce. And so um, since only one person, like one uh, wallet on the blockchain can own or possess the unique NFT that points to that that collectible. Um, it's just sort of a way of um, of allocating ownership over an asset that, in fact, like is not uh, you know th that everybody owns. So it's important to understand that when we talk about crypto art, that that when we when we use the term NFT, the NFT is not itself the work of art. The work of art, let's say, is the, the JPEG or the MPEG file, the GIF. It's the thing that is represented or tokenized by the NFT on the blockchain. And this is a really important distinction. I just I, I want to pose a question that links back to a previous episode of ours that may both help me understand this a little better and might help our listeners. So if we think back to something like our episode on Thomas Kincaid, and how there are Kincaid works that are works and reproductions, and there are all these layers of reproductions, but there's a certificate of authenticity that accompanies these works that show that they're, you know, authorized by the Kincaid studio. So could we think of this as perhaps like, if you just had that, that certificate of authenticity, but no actual object? Basically, yeah. I mean, that, that oftentimes NFTs are referred to as certificates of authenticities. Um, I've also thought of them as deeds. Um, they've also been described as receipts. Um, you know, they're they're basically a way of proving ownership over something. But what's what I can't stress enough, and what's like absolutely mind bending about this, is that they don't actually prove ownership. So um, if you look at the terms and conditions that govern the um, the buying and selling of NFTs on you know the most popular platforms for buying and selling um, digital collectibles and NFT art, most of the terms and conditions explicitly state that when you buy the NFT, you are not buying the work that is tokenized, that you get no legal um, ownership over the, the work itself. Um, in fact, I was really stunned to see that in one of the um, in, in, on one of the platforms, they specifically say that the artist, in fact, retains full rights of ownership over the work. Um, and not just intellectual property rights, because that's always the case, right? Artists always retain copyright, even when they sell the work of art to a collector or to a museum, the artists retain copyright. So the work is still their, the image of the work is still their intellectual property, even if they no longer control the physical asset, which means, for example, that like, you know, I work at a museum and if my museum buys your painting, we physically own the painting, we get to control when and where it's shown, but we still would need to ask you for permission to reproduce that work, um, you know, in a book or online and so actually we give until it of, goes until it goes into the public domain until it goes into the public domain and in fact you know that's now when we acquisition works we always immediately ask for an image release so that we don't have to go to the artist and negotiate that right every single time but 
we do have to have some paperwork on file saying that we have permission from the artist to reproduce the work because just because we own it doesn't mean we own the, the, the copyright to the intellectual property of the work. Um, so when you're buying an NFT, according you know, to um, some of these terms and conditions, um, you, you don't own the intellectual property, but you don't even own the work itself. You don't own the file. You own nothing. It, it, it actually says that um, in one case that the artist retains the right to sell that same work to somebody else. And so as I sort of pointed out on Twitter, as I've been like working through these things in real time, um, if I own something, but the person I bought it from can turn around and sell it to somebody else, I don't own it, right? I mean, it just, uh, the concept of ownership here doesn't really mean anything. So we're talking about NFTs as if they're a way to, um, to buy and sell digital art or digital assets. But we have to understand that really when you buy an NFT, all you're buying is the NFT. It's a receipt that says that you bought the receipt. Um, and so it's just um, a, a total transformation in how we understand ownership, which has consequences on things like how we understand stewardship or how we understand um, um, rights. Um, so basically the NFT just reduces art ownership to bragging rights. And um, in that way, it is very different from, let's say, uh, a Thomas Kincaid or another work that is uh, essentially a multiple, because in that case, you are actually buying the work of art. You are buying the print. And then there's a certificate of authenticity that proves that your print is authentic. But to buy an NFT, you're basically just buying the certificate. You're not buying the work itself. You have no legal claim over the work. And again, I'm, I'm sort of um, being a bit reductive. I'm... I'm referring to what happens in most cases. People are increasingly aware that this is you know, potentially problematic and are writing new and different contracts that would actually grant legal title and ownership. Um, but at least in, in the preponderance of the cases um, that I've seen, this is the way that it works. Although I'm not uh, an expert on contemporary art and, and crypto art and NFTs, this does dovetail with some of my research interests, particularly around questions of, of images and reproduction. And when we think about works of art being reproduced, the first thing that probably comes to one's mind is photography, photographic reproductions of, of, of paintings or whatever, because that's how most of us experience works that we can't actually see in person, or that's how people have experienced works of art that they don't see in, they're not actually seeing in person is through photography. That's how it's been done for the past, uh, about a century. Um, but for me, one thing that's particularly valuable in the context of this discussion uh, is is not photographic uh, reproductions of works of art, but a much longer history of printed reproductions of works of art. Um, so it's important to realize that, you know, photography came around in the late 1830s, uh, but it was a number of decades after that before photography had leached, reached a level of, um, of quality that uh, allowed it to capture accurately capture works of art that could then um, and then those photographs could then be reproduced and sold as reproductions. But there's a much longer history of of other print me media being used to reproduce existing works of art. 
um, from engraving to etching um, to wood engraving, all these different print media that I won't get into. Um, but one thing that I, I did start thinking, this did get me thinking about as Tina was talking, was um, what is actually used as the basis for printed reproductions. So in printmaking, there's the object that we call the matrix, and that's basically either the wood block or the uh, plate, the metal plate that is used to, it, it is inked, and then um, I'm, I'm similarly really glossing over the uh, ins and outs of printmaking, but it's basically like you have a matrix, it's inked, you put a piece of paper or something else on top of it, put pressure on on the paper so that the ink is transferred from the matrix to uh, the piece of paper. The resulting print is called an impression. But you have the matrix from which all of these uh, all of these impressions can be pulled. There have been a lot of really interesting and important questions and discussions that have come up around printmaking and reproduction, especially I mean, including around really what we would consider kind of canonical masters like uh, someone like Rembrandt, who was a very prolific printmaker as well as as a painter. And a number of Rembrandt's print matrices have survived and a lot of them went up for auction uh, in, I think, in the 1980s. And... So you had people who purchased these print matrices and started making impressions from them again. And you could certainly make the case, well, this person is, you know, they are the owner of this print matrix. They could, in theory, do whatever they want with it. But then the subsequent question is, do we consider prints that are made well after Rembrandt's death and, you know, not in not necessarily in concordance with his wishes. I mean, we don't know because he's dead, but do we consider those real Rembrandt prints? And the matrix itself is a really important part of this discussion because Rembrandt did make the matrix, but then the prints that are made from the matrix after his death, like how quote unquote original or authentic can we consider those, particularly since they still are reproductions. There's no single print that is considered the one print. Um, they all have sort of different, you know, little differences because they're, the ink is going to be, you know, the, the inking and the pole is going to be slightly different with every impression, but still there's no like, this is the one print. And again, these are really complex questions that um, print scholars spend a lot of time thinking about. But the, the key thing I want to get at is that you still have that matrix, that object that is like the source of the prints, and that's something that, um, if I, you know, if I'm understanding this correctly, is again something that distinguishes uh, something like prints, or the, you know, the history of printmaking and things like print matrices from something like an M NFT. Is that would that be accurate to say? Yeah, I have to think about this for a second. So yeah. <laughs> so we just have to distinguish between talking about digital art and talking about NFTs. So mm -hmm. when we talk about digital art. Um, you know, it's different from printmaking in the sense that, you know, there are, there is sort of a digital file and in theory, that digital file could be reproduced exactly and infinitely. Now we know the case, like I can already hear all of the, you know, digital art conservators who are like raising their hands and shouting, wait, 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 wait. So it's, it's never really that simple and digital files do need active conservation and they need to be regularly checked against um, quote unquote master copies. So even with digital files, there are sort of different versions 
like there's like the sort of archival master and then there's the exhibition copy. So even these, you know, these files are supposed to be absolutely identical. Um, there are sort of multiple versions. And then also, you know, it, it may be the case that a file is reformatted for a particular output or that a file is, um, you know, down resed um, to be shown in a different for whatever reason, you know, um, that you would just want a lower resolution file. Maybe it's, you know, something that you're sharing publicly and you don't have, um, you know, you don't want to sort of freely make available the full um, resolution version. So anyway, I'm getting into the weeds, but the, the point is, is that, um, you know, with digital art in theory, you know, you, you could have uh, multiple copies that are exactly the same where there's no difference between um, uh, you know, versions in the same way that, you know, there's a master uh, matrix, but then each print off that matrix might actually be somewhat in, in very like microscopic ways, perhaps would be somewhat different from each other. Um, but when you're talking about the NFT, like we're not even really talking about the creation of art and the artwork itself being, um, you know, reproducible or not. I mean, the NFT is an, is, um, is simply a, a, f a way of financializing or commodifying the digital asset. And um, the interesting comparison here is to think about how we create value around, or the perception of value, especially of economic value, financial value around multiples. And, you know, as Sarah has been, you know, um, uh, has pointed out, you know, artists have been making multiples for a really long time, going back to the time of the old masters, going back to the 17th century. And there has been a market for multiples that goes back to the 17th century. And so I think the, the sort of big picture idea to take out of this is that, you know, NFTs are being touted as this absolute revolution because they allow us to commodify assets that are reproducible. And in fact, even though, you know, prints themselves are not reproducible in the same way as a digital asset in theory, um, they also encountered that same problem, right? Of like, how do you commodify? How do you monetize? How do you put a value on something that is, um, you know, that could exist in multiple iterations? And, um, you know, there has been a market for prints um, since, you know, <laughs> since prints were invented, basically. Um, and it has historically been the case that prints are not as valued as um, uh, unique assets like paintings and sculptures, um, precisely because there, you know, are many of them. Um, that there is this idea that that value is tied to scarcity, and so the reason that the NFT is such a sort of revolutionary thing is that the NFT again it creates that perception of artificial scarcity. It it allows for a digital artwork to be thought of, to be treated, to be financially valued as if it was a painting. You know, after the invention of prints, you know, then photography comes along. And I don't want to get into the weeds on the history of photography, but suffice it to say that, you know, there also has been a market for photographic prints for a very long time. And uh, again, the value of photographs was, you know, um, considered to be not as high as paintings and sculptures. But there was um, a market there was, you know, there was financial value attached to them. Um, and especially starting in the 1990s, when artists started making these prints that were as large as paintings. And when artists started, um, you know, really controlling the addition numbers so that instead of having a, a photo that would have a thousand prints or a hundred prints, they started making photos that would have like five prints, meaning that they would 
um, you know, they were they were promising collectors that they would only ever print five versions of this particular image. Um, and that no more would ever be made. And, you know, sometimes, you know, artists would go so far as to sort of um, like literally destroy the negative to ensure that. Um, now everything's digital, so it's a little more complicated. But, um, I, you know, uh, photos then started um, being much more valuable. And so we look back to like Andreas Gursky, um, for example, setting like incredible um, uh, records at auction um, and in the primary market for his works. Um, so, you know, photography really... Um, has been given a kind of value that competes with painting and sculpture um, through the concept of additioning, uh, you know, of artificially constraining the number of things that exist. And so, again, the NFT, though, it's something different because it actually doesn't matter how many, um, how many times the artwork exists out there in the world. Um, I don't want to call them additions, but you know, the digital file, it could exist in infinite copies and it wouldn't matter because only one person can have the NFT. Um, and so it's very important, that, you know, going to Sarah's concept about authenticity, the authenticity of the NFT derives from the fact that it's the artist who, uh, herself who, quote unquote, mints the NFT, who, who puts the NFT, like who creates it on the blockchain. And so only the artist you know, is considered to have the authority to make the NFT because otherwise, of course, anybody can like, again, an NFT can just points to something. So like a hundred people could make NFTs that all point to the same asset. So the only way the system works is that if everyone agrees that the only NFTs that people are going to consider valid and valuable are the ones that are created by the artists themselves. Um, so, um, so the artist themselves is sort of the 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 guarantee here um, of the um, originality and the authenticity of the NFT itself. So, in a way, it's actually shifting all of these questions about the originality um, or, or authenticity of the multiple, right? Like, is this print an authentic print? Was it made by Rembrandt or by one of his studio members? Was it made after his death? What's the quality of the print? So all of those questions now no longer pertain to the digital asset, um, which is allowed to exist in infinite numbers and, and um, because, you know, information wants to be free and it's very hard to control that. Um, and, you know, again, which should in theory exist in exact perfect replicas. Um, so all of those questions, in fact, shift onto the NFT. It's like, what is the authenticity of the NFT? And is the NFT in fact unique? And so there's a lot of policing happening in the crypto art community um, about, you know, it's, it's very much frowned upon if you go around minting NFTs that point to assets that are not your intellectual property or not um, objects that you physically possess. And so um, back in March, I don't know what is time anymore. I think it was March. Um, I was looking on OpenSea, which is a platform for um, it's a, it's a it's an NFT art platform that is very commonly used. Um, and uh, I was looking for something else. I was searching for um, some works by Duchamp, actually, um, for some people who had sort of made you know NFTs of their. Um, digital artwork that was sort of appropriating works by Duchamp, because it turns out that there's a lot of people who are interested in doing that. And Sarah and I will come back to that in a few minutes. Um, but in the course of searching for that, I came across a company um, that had a bunch of listings 
for artworks that were held by major museums um, uh, in Europe and in North America that, and the works themselves were out of copyright. So the works themselves are public domain and the photos of the works that the museums took and put on their website were also um, sort of open access. Um, and I'm, that's not exactly the right legal term, but anyway, um, the museums had said that you know anyone could freely use these images, including for commercial purposes. And this has been a this has been a big deal in the art history world and in the museum world. The the movement towards museums making things just that are in the public domain freely available for any purpose accessible. Yeah, I mean this is like one of the big things about you know the people who work in um, in the museum field with digital technologies. You know, there's like a lot of support for the idea of open access and that you know the world's cultural heritage. Like the job of the museum is to facilitate the public's access to this material and that it's like. Um, a moral issue, right? That we should make these works accessible. Of course, the museum, you know, has to spend a lot of its resources, like financial and, and staff time, to produce these high-quality images and to get them up on the internet and to host them. But that's what more and more museums are doing, including the Art Institute of Chicago, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Like it's sort of like the 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 trend, right? Is that museums are doing this? Um, and so this company out of Singapore, um, basically, we're abusing that trust. I think. Um, by scraping some of these assets and then minting NFTs of them. And I was sort of shocked because of course they had legally the right to do this, but morally, it's like they don't, they don't own these artworks. They don't hold them in the public trust. They're not stewards of them. And it seems like if anyone, you know, should be allowed to sort of monetize them. And I know, I know, I know that the museums like, you know, said that anybody could monetize these images for any purpose, but it just felt icky. And then what was really icky is that the this company was violating museum trademark because they were advertising them as um, works that were in these museum collections and saying that they were doing this as a fundraiser for those museums when it became clear that the museums actually knew nothing about this or wanted nothing to do with it. So anyway, so it was a grift, right? I'm mean, just like an old fashioned. The thing that shocked me most about this whole um, episode was that the people in the crypto art community were like as mad about this as the people in the art world community because it violates the like fundamental precept of the NFT, which is that you have to have the authority to mint that NFT. Otherwise, again, if anybody can mint an NFT of anything, then the NFT means nothing, right? The only thing that secures the value of the NFT that guarantees that the NFT is quote unquote authentic is that the NFT has to be made by somebody who has some type of claim to the asset, um, whether it's the artist or the museum that owns the work or whatever. So I was actually getting you know contacted by by crypto art people who were like wanting to to hack and dox these, this company. And um, so that was, yeah, so it just, it just exposed to me the sort of logic here, you know, to, to the point we've been um, discussing that, you know, it shifts questions of authenticity and originality from the the artwork uh, to the the NFT itself, right, to the financial instrument. So, you know, we've, we've, had a long history, you know, going back hundreds of years of, of trying to create markets for reproducible media from prints to photographs. And then with digital art itself, there's a history of people additioning and selling digital artworks um, using just regular contracts and, and fiat currency. I mean, um, people have been doing this, you know, since the 1990s. And there are some artists who have sort of pioneered that, um, like Olia Lialina and Raphael Rosendahl, who um, Olia started the, the purported first sort of net art gallery online for selling net art online. And then Raphael Rosendahl 
um, uh, started selling his websites to collectors. So um, you have artists like that finding their own ways, you know, net artists and digital artists finding their own ways to, to monetize their work. And then um, you also have galleries like Postmasters and Transfer Gallery and and or Gallery that there are these, you know, commercial galleries that have existed. Um, some of them like Postmasters back since, you know, uh, um, since the 1990s, uh, who have been selling works of art to collectors. Um, so digital art, you know, it's had a market. It's, um, you know, it's not like people haven't been buying and selling digital art, just like we have bought and sold photographs and before them um, prints. But um, what's happening with NFTs is very different. And I think this, the scale of it is very, very different. And it's emerging, I think, sociologically from a very different place. So just really quickly, um, I think some of the reasons that, you know, we're seeing um, NFTs happen now. Well, first of all, it's the technology itself, right? I mean, it's all, blockchain's only been around for um, a little over a decade, and the NFT itself, um, you know, has only been around for about half a decade. And the contract, like most NFT works, are sold on a particular blockchain um, called Ethereum, and the smart contract on Ethereum. Um, known as ERC-721, has only been around for a couple of years. So it's like the technology, right, needed to be in place in order for this to happen. Um, but I also think that the culture needed to be in place. And what we've seen over the past few years is that there's been um, a sort of cultural shift where people now regularly spend real money on things that, you know, quote unquote, don't exist. I mean, they're not tangible, they're digital assets. And of course, they're very real to the people who buy them. But I'm talking about things like, uh, in-game purchases, when you're playing a game, a digital game, and you spend real money on buying a virtual weapon, or maybe a virtual piece of land or real estate or a virtual avatar. So people, you know, or if you think about like, I don't know, like Candy Crush or these other kinds of online games that people are now regularly spending money on di fully digital experiences and assets. Um, so I think that that is a really important sort of background to the story. There also has been um, an incredible rise in the market for mass-produced goods. So if you think about something like sneakers, for example, there is a huge culture, especially on the internet, of buying and selling like, you know, a secondary market for these items. Um, I just saw the other day that a pair of like Yeezy sneakers went for like over a million dollars, right? So the idea that just because something is mass-produced, just because something exists in multiple doesn't mean it can't have a really high value. And that high value, of course, is coming from, from um, the, the passion that collectors have for these things. I mean, people genuinely sort of love them. And it's a lifestyle thing, right? People want to um, buy and sell these things. It's, it's part of who they are. It's part of how they interact with their community. And then, of course, you have the speculators, people who get into these markets because they are trying to take advantage of the fact that so many people do love these things and, and want to have them. So there's that. I also think it's not incidental that this is all happening basically a year into the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, we have all, you know, more or less been quarantined, stuck at home with not a hell of a lot to do except stare at our screens. So it's given some excitement, some drama um, to, to go online and to participate in these online auctions and, you know, to interact. Like uh, the whole crypto community is full of people who are very passionate about um, NFTs and crypto art, and they interact with each other on various social media platforms. And I think it's just given people something to do in a community and 
um, excitement. And, you know, and auctions and, and buying and selling art is addictive as anybody who's, you know, been near or in the traditional art market knows, or anybody who's ever like, you know, hunted for things on eBay. It's very addictive seeing if you've like won that auction and tuning into it. And then when you miss it, like trying to find the next thing that you're going to go hunting after. But then perhaps the most important factor is the rise in the value of cryptocurrencies. So at the end of 2020, for reasons that I'm not going to get into and also probably don't fully understand, the value of some cryptocurrencies really skyrocketed. So I went back and I looked at the historical records, and I think Ether, for example, which is the cryptocurrency that runs off of the Ethereum blockchain, um, rose in value something like a thousand percent over the past 12 months. And so early adopters of cryptocurrency, people who bought cryptocurrency, you know, very early on because they're super into the idea of the blockchain or, you know, they're just were looking to invest are suddenly sitting on piles of, of, you know, Bitcoin, of Ether, and they don't really have anything to spend it on yet. <laughs> this is one of the big problems with cryptocurrency is that like, if you want to stay within the cryptocurrency ecosystem and not convert it out to fiat, which is very expensive, um, and which also means that you cannot then further benefit from the increasing rise in the value of cryptocurrency. If you really are a true believer and you think this stuff's only going to go up, why would you cash out? Um, so, you know, you're, you're, you're sitting on all this money, you don't want to cash it out and, but there's nothing to do with it. It's kind of boring. So, um, the NFTs give people something to spend it on. And to them, it's sort of, when, when you have, you know, it, it increase in value that rapidly, I don't want to say it's like monopoly money, but, you know, I saw somebody make this amazing point that, you know, there was a very famous artwork, um, that was auctioned, or it's, it's famous because it was auctioned. Um, by Christie's for $69 million. It's by a man, um, uh, by Mike Winkleman, who goes by the name Beeple online. Um, and it was, you know, that $69 million price tag, somebody pointed out, you could have bought six, it was paid for in, um, in Ether. And you could have bought $69 million worth of Ether uh, a year ago for a million dollars. So you have to imagine that somebody who bought, you know, that work, so that work was bought, um, you know, by cryptocurrency investors, um, and, you know, to them, um, it doesn't, it wasn't as, as painful on the wallet as if somebody had spent 69 million USD, right? Um, they're basically um, playing with their winnings um, to go to a sort of casino metaphor, which a lot of people have used to describe um, this sort of ecosystem. Um, so, of course, once you have like incredible um, amounts of quote unquote money being exchanged for these works. It attracts the attention of the traditional sectors of the art market who are always looking to find new customers um, and new ways to make money. And so we saw a lot of traditional auction houses and now even some traditional art galleries getting into the crypto art space, which has only increased sort of the attention. And um, uh, they are sort of going into um, not quite competition, but sort of creating partnerships with the existing uh, crypto art platforms um, like OpenSea and SuperRare and Nifty Gateway and Foundation, um, where uh, you know people are are doing most of the buying and selling. And you don't need any of these platforms necessarily to um, to buy and sell NFTs, but they just make it easy and they have the interface and they they're the known names and they're marketing. Um, but it's it's very interesting. I mean, I don't want to get too far into it, but in terms of what they offer, you know, they're not like traditional art galleries. Um, they are merely platforms that allow artists and their collectors to find each other. Um, I'll put it that way. Um, and if you're interested more in the market aspects of this, you can track sales. Um, the you know because all of the transactions on the blockchain are public, 
Um, they, I mean, they're encrypted, um, but they're also public. So you can sort of see um, publicly, you can go back and like see all of the transactions between wallets and the wallets themselves may be anonymized. So you won't, you can't, you'll know exactly which wallet originated it and which wallet received it, um, you know, which wallets on either end of the transaction, but the wallet itself is not going to be like Sarah Schaefer's wallet, um, unless, you know, um, Sarah decides to self-identify on a platform that way. But um, but the the records themselves are public, and so you have websites like CryptoArt.io and CryptoArtPulse that are um, scraping all of these records and are creating um, aggregate statistics about the size of the crypto art market and about the state of the crypto art market. And what we can see is that basically what's really happening is you have um, a, a lot of artists but only a very small number of them, as Kim Parker um, recently wrote an amazing essay on, and we'll link to that from our website, really only a very small number of artists are really getting rich off of this. Um, it, it's, you know, it's very much like the traditional art market in that sense that you have you know, a couple of people who are doing really well, everyone else is just sort of out there and hoping to make sales or their sales are really minor. Um, and the overall value of the market is still like a pittance compared to the you know, mainstream contemporary art market. Um, so there's so much hype about it and we talk so much about it. And it is definitely astounding that like this work by Beeple, you know, when it was sold, it made him the third most expensive um, artist, living artist at auction uh, after like Jeff Koons and David Hockney, which is like quite shocking. Um, but again, you know, that money is coming from someplace else and um, it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone out there is, you know, selling works of art for, for many millions. It's really just um, the sort of superstars in this scene. At this point, we've really only scratched the surface of the uh, very substantial notes that mostly Tina has put together for this episode. So we belatedly decided to make this a two-parter. Um, we're going to stop here for now and come back in a subsequent episode and talk a bit more about what are kind of the pros and cons of of NFTs and the relationship to, to crypto art, provide some more context for discussions around uh, this material, what are some uh, criticisms for them, and uh, perhaps where they may develop in the future. As always, if you'd like to learn more, please check out our website, arthistoryhappyhour.com, and there you'll find our episode blog, which includes images and links to materials we've discussed in this episode, as well as a link to our Patreon account. In the very near future, we'll be releasing the first episode of our Scene series, which is a benefit of becoming a patron of the show. Uh, for $2 a month, you can become a patron of the podcast, and that'll give you access to these episodes of Scene, in which we discuss the appearance of art in things like movies and TV and the like. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at arthistoryhour at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash arthistoryhappyhour and on both Twitter and Instagram as at arthistoryhour. Hour.